Hi, it's Andrew Doyle here, writer, comedian, and Spiked columnist. Before we get into this week's Spiked podcast, I just wanted to tell you a little bit about my own podcast, Culture Wars with Andrew Doyle. As we all know, the culture wars have exploded into the mainstream and they're having an impact on everyone's lives, whether we like it or not. So in this podcast, I want to get beyond the headlines, beyond the partisan bickering, and try and find out what's really going on. In the latest episode, I was delighted to talk to Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay about the origins of all the very worst woke ideas. So to listen to the episode, simply search for Culture Wars with Andrew Doyle through your podcast provider, or you can find it on the Spiked website at spiked-online.com. And while you're there, you may as well subscribe as well, so you don't miss any future episodes. That's Culture Wars with Andrew Doyle. See you there. Now, back to the Spiked podcast. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me this week as ever we have Spiked deputy editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the exams debacle, the end of Public Health England and the Democratic National Committee. Exams aren't going to be taking place in this academic year. We have every confidence that the system that we've put in place is a robust system, a system that's fair for the pupils. But there's controversy because the figures for England show that 39% of grades were marked down, while 2% went up. I'm incredibly sorry for the distress that it's caused to those young people. Perhaps one of the most visible consequences of the lockdown has been the turmoil it's caused to exams. When exams were scrapped earlier this year, a system was devised to allow schools to give pupils predicted grades, which would then be moderated by an algorithm. But in the end, the algorithm downgraded around 280,000 exam results, almost two in five. The problem disproportionately affected the most disadvantaged students, as it brought grades in line with the school's previous results. After days of anger and the prospect of students missing out on university places and jobs over exams they never sat, the government reluctantly U-turned and scrapped the algorithm entirely. The chaos is not over. BTEC results were pulled just hours before pupils were due to see them this week. So, Tom, should we have seen this disaster coming? Oh, definitely. And I think in terms of the immediate problem, particularly with this algorithm and the way in which it was hitting disadvantaged students the most because it would take into account kind of historical data from their school. It also privileged schools which had smaller cohorts doing particular A-levels, which basically just means helping out private schools more. And all these kind of more immediate problems with the algorithm were clear over the course of the last few weeks and even just over the last month. You know, the A-level crisis that hit just over a week after we saw a near identical crisis in Scotland as the reports have been coming out over the past few days, you've seen the number of times in which both Gavin Williamson and Ofqual, which is the regulator of the exams and qualifications in England, were warned by various people, former grandees from the DfE. The Education Select Committee put out a report in July pointing out that precisely these problems, the way in which it would hit disadvantaged students in particular. And so increasingly, Gavin Williamson's line that he only really clocked the issues with it over the weekend, even after the A-level <laughs> results came out, was obviously untenable. But at the same time, I feel like there's been a slight level of dishonesty in the discussion insofar as there was always going to be some sort of horrendous crisis to deal with the moment at which you cancelled exams. It doesn't matter how good this algorithm was, it was always going to be absurd to try and assess individual attainment on the basis of kind of group statistics and trends. I mean, that was never going to work. And one of the things that I think is unfortunate, and we see it throughout the coronavirus discussion, 
is that you have a lot of people criticising the government rightly when they get it wrong, where they show rank incompetence, as Gavin Williamson has definitely over the course of this crisis, but fail to really make the killer point because they supported a lot of these measures in the first place. They supported the closure of schools. They supported the cancer living exams. If anything, they wanted it to be shut down, you know, two weeks earlier <laughs> in each case, you know, rather than actually criticising it on that point. And that really didn't need to happen. You can kind of understand why the schools would be closed in a moment of kind of global panic. But at the same time, as more and more information came out about how the virus wasn't really affecting young people, as we saw the instance of infections amongst young people in places like Sweden, where they kept more or less all schools open under 16, again, there was no move. And in in the questions of exams, again, these are things which even before the pandemic were done basically in a socially distanced way. You saw Germany, which is obviously held up as a great example to the rest of us most of the time they went ahead with exams even though there were concerns both about safety and about attainment they even saw in some areas students do better than last year and again I think it just comes down to there's a tremendous kind of presentism in the way that we've been responding to the coronavirus crisis so much so that even the obviously disastrous impact of shutting down huge areas of social and civic life like shutting down your education system basically and cancelling exams in Scotland's case at least for the first time in history all of that was just kind of thrown out of the window. Could someone else have dealt with it better? Almost certainly. I think Gavin Williamson will stay in the cabinet but purely on the basis of the fact that he knows where the bodies are buried, etc. But at the same time, I think all of this stems from that initial crucial mistake, which was to throw everything at stopping coronavirus to be so precautionary they actually end up doing things which were going to do more damage and not create much benefit. And I think the problem is a lot of people, certainly in the political class, can't criticise it because they supported all of these extreme measures themselves in the first place. Ella? Yeah, well, Tom's talked about presentism, but it's very difficult to get anyone to look at the wider context for this. So, of course, it's a big problem that lots of kids have been cheated, lots of bright kids have been cheated out of their good grades. We've also got to ask the wider question of why the education system has been set up in such a way, pandemic or no pandemic, that, for example, lots of kids are failing throughout the school year and only really managed to pull it together at the last minute. So while everyone was kind of bemoaning these A-star grade kids, which is a big problem that they got downgraded to Bs and Cs and even Ds in some cases, you know, what about your classic low attainer who actually is very bright and only really gets it together at the last minute. Those kids have also been cheated out of their opportunity to prove themselves. And it was actually quite heartening of all the protests that have been happening with school pupils that while some of them have been sort of just blaming the government, rightly so, um, for screwing up their future, lots of them were holding up placards saying, let me sit my exams, let me sit my test, let me get back into school, because there was a sense of injustice at not being able to prove themselves. And when taking into consideration the wider context, again, it's very easy to point the finger at Gavin Williamson. You know, this is a guy who's notorious for failing to step up in the situation and be the kind of leader that you should be in a given subject. I mean, he's famously the guy who told Russia to go away and shut up. So it was (laughs) unlikely that he was ever going to handle this particular scandal that everyone knew was coming very well. And he's just embarrassed himself and embarrassed himself again. But, you know, there are wider questions. As Tom brought up the issue of the fact that kids not being allowed to go into school and the government has to answer to that, not a single minister. But there's also, for me anyway, when the fury over the exam results dies down, there's a much larger question, which is that not just you have a year, a cohort who have been cheated out of their certificates or the certificates that they deserved, 
There's also a question of what happens next with these kids, because those who are going to university haven't in any serious way been put under any academic pressure for months on end now. You know, some um, teachers have been working hard to do Zoom classes and all that stuff has been happening. But in terms of these kids' academic engagement, it's way below what they need to then meet the kind of challenges they're going to face in September and October when they kick back into higher education. So this is a a scandal that's going to roll on and on and on. And it can't just be fixed with tinkering from off court. It can't even be fixed by Gavin Williamson stepping down as unlikely that is. Have to look at the kind of situation holistically and say that there needs to be massive changes with regards to the education system. And if anything else, it proves the value of exams. I'll hear no more slating of exams anymore, because if anything, this proves how central they are to being able to not just assess kids' ability, but keep them under pressure, prepare them and get them to solidify their knowledge. Unlikely though, because exams are much maligned. (laughs) Well, no, that's true. As well as the precautionary principle that has existed well before the pandemic, there's this pre-existing kind of contempt for exams in a lot of educational circles. And you think, yeah, no one should be saying that now. Clearly exams are the way forward, the best way to assess pupils in in actually what is a fair way. One of the interesting things about this exam sphere is the way that it's cut through, I think, to a greater extent than any of the other kind of consequences of lockdown have. When the GDP figures come out, every time those come out and there's a big disaster, it will be a day's worth of news maybe, and then we'll soon forget about it. But this exams row has gone on for weeks now, and it's a good thing that this has kind of come to the fore and people are almost having to recognise the consequences of putting society on hold. The only thing is that because it has a kind of crunch point, there's a results day, other public services don't really have that. And, you know, they're kind of a ticking time bomb. So think issues that are just as if not more important, like the, you know, the soaring waiting lists in the NHS or the massive backlog in the courts. There's not going to be a particular focus or a day that's going to lead people to say enough is enough. How do we deal with this? So those kind of long running other disasters that are waiting to happen are just not getting the attention that that they deserve, I think. No, I think that's right. Joanna Williams made this point on Spiked this week about this issue, talking about how much the way in which the schools were closed and the exams were called off, how much that shows a kind of contempt for education, a lack of belief in it, a lack of understanding of how important it is, you know, in part because of actually kids' future earnings potential. I know that's not the point we should focus on, but at the same time, it is true that if you, again, deprive kids of schooling for long periods of time, it's going to really hurt them in later life. Brookings Institution did some research into this recently, suggested that even adjusting for online learning, it's really going to hit kids in the future. It also, just in terms of general educational development, social development, you know, there's research earlier this year that something like 2 million children have done no schoolwork <laughs> over the course of this period. We know that it's deepened inequalities between private school kids and comprehensive kids, between kids at comprehensive in in richer areas and kids at comprehensive in poorer areas. All of this was clear. But at the same time, when you talk about some of the other crises that we've seen and we're going to see, as United to their phrase, are some of the health issues. It's not just that education or various other areas of life were kind of thrown under the bus in the pursuit of trying to keep us healthy. Other areas of health were thrown under the bus Mm. in the pursuit of trying to keep these numbers down. And I think it's quite interesting because we've been talking a lot about the precautionary principle recently and the way in which that's been guiding government policy perhaps to its fault. But at the same time, there's something fundamentally un 
cautious about some of the decisions that have been made. You know, closing down your entire education system for such a long period of time was almost guaranteed to do tremendous damage. Closing down your health system and only really limiting it, or at least focusing on one particular area and one particular disease, was always going to have disastrous long-term consequences. And I think in a way, we've got to kind of shift away from looking at a lot of these decisions around lockdown, around education, around the health service, as a cautious approach, as a safety-first approach, when if anything, the negative impact of them was more clear at the beginning of this crisis than some of the health impacts around coronavirus, which we're learning about all of the time. So I think one of the things that's been so shocking about the recent period is not how cautious governments have been, but in many respects, how reckless they've been insofar as just casting entire areas of life into disarray and young people in particular, at least in terms of what we're talking about at the moment, really having to bear the brunt of all that. Another issue that I've been thinking about is you know, the crisis of authority in education, because you have to ask the question, who's in charge here? Because the government is flailing. It's, you know, it tries to implement this new strategy of based on algorithms. And then sure, it was bad. I'm glad that it was overturned. But the very fact that they kind of, you know, as Tom says, Williamson pretended like he didn't know, or if he didn't know, then that's terrible. Seems, you know, who is actually holding the reins here? Offcall predicted that it was, you know, 60% accurate. Who's in charge there? There's the issue of the kind of panic around not being able to trust teachers' grades because they'd be inflated. Again, why aren't we trusting the authority of teachers to be able to represent their pupils properly? All these questions um, lead to much bigger rifts in the education system. I mean, it's not kind of rocket science to know that the reason why kids in private schools or kids who go on to Oxbridge succeed, it isn't just because of resources and wealth. It's because in those places, there's a deep sense of authority and young people get hothoused and you have exams every week and essays and you come out at a much better academic level than others. So, you know, I'm trying to suggest massive changes in the education system I'm aware, but a regaining of the sense of authority is at least a starting point. ExpressVPN lets you access the internet as if you're from a different country. Netflix has different shows and movies available depending on where you are. With ExpressVPN, you can unlock thousands of new shows and movies from streaming libraries across the globe. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but ExpressVPN is ridiculously fast. You can stream everything in HD quality with zero buffering. ExpressVPN is available on every device, phones, laptops, tablets, even your smart TV. ExpressVPN works with many streaming services, Netflix, Amazon Prime, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, and many more and you can choose from almost 100 different countries. It's really easy to use. Just fire up the ExpressVPN app, you change your location, hit connect, and then refresh the page you're on, and the show or movie you want to watch should magically appear. One thing I enjoyed re-watching was Pulp Fiction, which you can get on Netflix USA, but not here in Britain. If you're listening from outside the UK, I'm sure there's some fantastic British comedies you're missing out on that are exclusive to UK streaming services. If you use the Spiked Podcast link right now at expressvpn.com slash spiked, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash spiked. This week, Health Secretary Matt Hancock announced plans to abolish Public Health England, Public Health England has not had a good COVID crisis. It was supposed to be the body responsible for preparing for pandemics, and yet the UK has had the highest death toll in Europe. 
In recent weeks, it was discovered that Public Health England had vastly overcounted the number of people dying from COVID and the figures had to be revised down by more than 10%. This, it seems, was the final straw. The body will now be replaced by the National Institute for Health Protection, which will have a more singular focus on protection from pandemics. Chris Snowden is joining us down the line for this section. Chris is the co-host of The Last Orders podcast, a Spikes podcast all about freedom, the nanny state and censorship. Chris, you've been reigning against Public Health England for some time, but before we talk more broadly about its problems, could you first tell us a bit about some of its failures in relation to the COVID pandemic? Everything went wrong from their point of view. They weren't the only people at fault, I should say, but they were very much at fault for all the things they were supposed to be responsible for. Primarily, you've already mentioned the mismeasurement of the number of deaths. In a way, that's um, the the least of their sins. I mean, that didn't actually kill anyone. The rest of their mistakes probably did. Contact tracing, they cocked up on. Rolling out the diagnostic tests, they majorly fouled up. Those two things are absolutely critical. I mean, they made a conscious decision on the 12th of March to basically stop testing in the community. And when asked in a select committee why they had not followed the South Korean or German route of massively ramping up testing so we can find out who's got this disease and do something about it, uh, they just said, that's a good question. We don't, I don't know. <laughs> So that was a, a major fault. There were other things as well. I mean, they, they were telling people not to wear masks, even in medical settings, until quite late in the day. I don't think they've ever quite done a U-turn on that. They said that there was no risk of there being transmission in care homes. I mean, you you name it, they balls it up. Well, Chris, something that you've been writing about for a long time, we talk a lot about on Last Orders, is the way in which organizations like public health lincoln they're not actually that interested in public health they're more interested in lifestyle they're more interested in what we eat what we smoke what we drink and something that you've pointed out you know especially given the demise of phe is just how much time it seemed to spend obsessing over those things at the cost of actually preparing for this pandemic which you know loads of experts had already predicted would be coming at some point so i was just wondering if you give us like a little bit of a flavor for how skewed its priorities have been over the years you know how much has it been obsessing over those over those lifestyle issues all the while this kind of looming threat was there that they weren't preparing for and look back on my blog to see the first reference i'd made to public health england it was about a week before it officially came into existence came into existence on april fool's day 2013 incidentally but even a week before it even officially existed it was campaigning on minimum pricing. I think it was his first public action was to say, we need to bring in minimum pricing for alcohol in England. It subsequently came up with some really very low quality reports and research on alcohol. It, to be fair, it came up with some good stuff on vaping, and I hope somebody will continue that in Public Health England's absence. But it's stuff on alcohol. It's stuff particularly we've discussed many times on the Last Orders podcast on food. It's bizarre pronouncements that people should only eat 400 calories for dinner and 400 calories for lunch and only 300 for breakfast. Arbitrary stuff, putting down exact figures of how many calories there should be at the most in a volavon or in an onion bhaji. I mean, this stuff was just obsessive. And then, of course, they they proceeded to pressure the food industry into reformulating all these products. So yeah, it certainly gave the impression in terms of its public facing stuff, most people would be familiar with Public Health England because of its nanny state nonsense, which seems to get worse by the year. To be fair, a huge number of people are working for Public Health England in their science campuses and in their labs who just quietly get on with the job and they've done a pretty good job with obviously not the pandemic preparation as such, but they did actually a good job of getting the diagnostic test 
developed in the first place. They're good with uh, sequencing and so on. So a lot of decent scientists have been let down by Public Health England, but presumably all those people will now go to this new health protection agency. Most of them came from the um, health protection agency in the first place. It was literally called the Health Protection Agency. It was closed down in favour of PHE, and now we've got the National Institute for Health Protection. Seems to me this is just we're just going around in circles. We're just rolling the clock back seven years to before PHE got involved or it was brought into existence. And we're going back to the old health protection agency days, which no one really has any complaints about. They just got on with the job. They didn't allow their mission to creep onto political issues like health inequalities, which PHE is obsessed by, or by nanny state issues to do with alcohol and food. So great. Chris, I mean, is it clear cut? Do you think, you know, that they're spending a lot more money on this nanny state stuff than on the kind of pandemic preparation stuff, which we would all agree we want to see in place? That is definitely true when you split up all the budgets. Most of the PHE budget goes to the local authorities. So every local authority by law has to have a local public health director. These people are typically paid around about £150,000. I'm never quite sure what they're actually doing, but they're, they're certainly not preparing for a pandemic. The PHE itself obviously does have a pandemic and global health budget. When you add it up, it's been rising over the years for one thing. So the idea that you know, cuts to public health are responsible for the poor performance of PHEs is wrong. The overall budget for infectious disease, but tropical disease, new diseases, is much lower than what is spent mainly by the local authorities on obesity control and tobacco control and all this other stuff. So certainly with hindsight, you can say they should have been spending more of this money on stockpiling PPE. But I think even at the time, you could say that. In fact, I pretty much did say that. I mean, the the kind of changes that the government's now bringing in are more or less what I've been suggesting for some years. You just have a public health agency that only looks at infectious disease and environmental hazards, which is to say genuine public health issues, not nanny state issues. Ella? You mentioned earlier on the kind of mistakes that PHE made throughout the pandemic. I mean, Rob Lyons in his column for Spike points out the worst one when they said they actually issued a statement saying it remains very unlikely that people receiving care in a care home or the community will become infected. And you have to wonder how they could have got that so appallingly wrong, so wrong that they retracted that statement. The reason why it's important to point out those things is really, Chris, how celebratory should we be about the end of PHE? Because isn't the problem actually not just that you set up a new body or you change the structure of this particular kind of political outlook, but that the problems with it still remain, you know, thinking about the ongoing obsession with obesity, whether or not PHE is there or not, the desire to put resources into programs like Change for Life, where you sort of, as you say, tinker with calorie counting and insult people with kind of specialised advertising rather than doing concrete things like opening up parks that have been locked down for months or building new sports centres. Is the kind of politics behind all of this going to remain and should be worried about that just as, you know, is the closure of PHE going to actually mean anything concrete in the way that we might see it as a positive for moving away from the nannying attitude of, of government policy in this area? I'm going to celebrate it anyway, because I don't get many opportunities to celebrate. (laughs) It's been a good week with Turkey Twizzlers coming back and this happening. I understand that this doesn't mean that Nanny State is dead in Britain or England at all. The government has just launched a whole load of anti-obesity policies, for one thing. It's unthinkable that they're going to turn around and get rid of all the people who are driving this stuff forward. There's a lot of people on pretty nice salaries in public health who are going to be 
feeling extremely threatened by this, they will be very vocal about it. They already are. There's already been people in the media saying that the government must secure the anti-smoking programs and the anti-obesity programs and so on. So it's not going to disappear. The question is, where does it go? The worst case scenario would be that the government capitulates and sets up a public health 2.0 to go along with the new National Institute for Health Protection. And that would be, apart from anything else, just really, really wasteful. And Chris will be back on Last Orders, talking more about this in more detail. To find Last Orders, just search for it using your podcast provider or go to the Spiked website at spiked-online.com. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. One of the many things I love about the Great Courses Plus streaming service is getting to learn from actual experts who know how to teach. The Great Courses Plus has real professors, people who have spent years studying their field. And most importantly, these are people who know how to teach and engage with people. One of my favourite courses I've listened to so far has been America After the Cold War, the first 30 years. It's taught by Patrick N. Allett from Emory University and it offers a fantastic reminder of the seminal moments leading up to the turbulent political era we now find ourselves in. One of the things that impressed me most was his ability to remain impartial when grappling with difficult and controversial issues and debates. With a vast selection of subjects, The Great Courses Plus truly has something for everyone. Learn to become a great writer, practice mindfulness, or delve into astrophysics. And with The Great Courses Plus app, you can learn anytime, anywhere, it's so easy. I love this streaming service. It's the perfect time to try The Great Courses Plus today. Right now, they have a limited offer just for listeners of the Spike podcast, an entire month of access for free. That's access to any and all of the courses for the next month completely free. Don't wait any longer. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked. The Democratic Party held its virtual national committee this week, confirming Joe Biden and Kamala Harris's nominations for president and vice president, respectively. Aside from the nominees, there were cameos from ex-presidents like Barack Obama and Bill Clinton and former first ladies like Michelle and Hillary. Republicans like Colin Powell and John Kasich also endorsed Biden at the committee. And of course, there were the obligatory celebrities like Eva Longoria, Billie Eilish and John Legend, all warned about the dangers Trump poses to democracy. Many also warned of rising racism. Fashionable causes from Black Lives Matter to the Green New Deal were pushed by various speakers. For months, Biden has had a comfortable lead in the polls, but now finds himself with a similar lead to Hillary Clinton at the start of the 2016 race. Is there a danger here that Democrats could be repeating the same mistakes that cost them last time? Ella, what are your thoughts? I think they are repeating themselves. I mean, to a point beyond farce now, and not just in terms of the polling, which is really interesting, you know, one putting their odds at winning the election at almost exactly the same number as was in 2016 between Trump and Clinton. So that's 29% to Trump and 71% to Biden. And many of these forecasts make the point that it's still August, that there's still a huge amount to play for. And there's still a huge amount that both candidates can do wrong, crucially, because there's certainly not a lot that either are doing right at the moment. But watching the Democratic Convention 
it is remarkable how I felt like I was watching the Oscars mm. uh, in terms of the vacuousness of the discussions, the contributions. I mean, you had the classic, you know, you mentioned Eva Longoria, hosts like Tracy Ellis Ross, basically trying to play on the celebrity factor, which everyone knows did nothing for them when it was Clinton in 2016. In fact, it actually turned people off. But worse than that, I watched the Michelle Obama speech, which was 18 and a half minutes long. It was of anti-politics. Her main point throughout the whole of her contribution was, I hate politics. You know that I hate politics. We all hate politics, don't we? And really what it is, is that Biden is this really nice guy that me and Barack know really well. And Trump is this really unpleasant guy. And you know, you've just got to pick who you think cares about our children more. That is a fair summation of the points <laughs> that she made. It didn't go any deeper than that. And it's baffling because I, I know that American politics are completely different to British politics. You know, the glitz and the glamour makes us feel uncomfortable. They still run with that kind of thing, you know, all the kind of actually quite naff graphics and the children singing Star Spangled Banner. But the politics of personality, the kind of trashing Trump and as such trashing Trump voters as just kind of nasty, evil people, deplorables, was proven to be one of Clinton's greatest weaknesses. And so I have no answer to why they would repeat that mistake this time, other than the fact that for both Biden and now Kamala Harris, there is nothing really positive or even not just revolutionary, but different that they have to offer in terms of this time round. So it's really a case of just, we are not Trump party. And, you know, I'm not a betting woman, but I, I would be find it very difficult to put any money on Biden being a safe bet on the basis of that. Tom? No, I agree with all of that. And I think it is just striking how they are doubling down on what proved to be a failed strategy last time. It's almost like they just feel so vindicated in the arguments that they made last time that they feel that they can just trot it out again, even though this is what cost them. You know, the focus on identity politics is really, really striking. You know, Kamala Harris gave her speech this week and it was very much about who she was, what she represented. All of the chatter around it was that she was, again, the first African-American and the first Asian-American VP pick. She talked about, you know, her background, her mother, her grandparents, how all of that informed her belief in democracy and all the rest of it. And it just was such a striking reminder of, again, the kind of Hillary Clinton campaign, which was very much about her being the first female president, but also the fact that she felt the pain of all the various different identity groups in America. And that in contrast, this horrible racist candidate in the form of Donald Trump was the person that you should back. That failed last time with Hillary Clinton. You know, she underperformed amongst black voters. And it failed last time for Kamala Harris as well, which no one seems to pay any attention to. The fact that the reason <laughs> she had to stop a presidential bid was precisely to those constituencies, women, African-American voters, just didn't want to have anything to do with her. You know, it was the old white guy in the form of Joe Biden who was their candidate throughout most of that race. So again, that seems to have generally backfired. And then you also have, as we've talked about, this kind of liberal catastrophism, this talk of Trump as a threat, not just to, you know, healthcare or to the economy or to health in the form of coronavirus, but to American democracy itself. Now, of course, there's a kernel of truth in that as far as Trump, as he did last time, is talking about not accepting the result of the American election. But on the one hand, I think not only does that kind of liberal catastrophism pass a lot of voters by, I think where the Democrats have done relatively well in recent times, you think about the midterms when they go on bread and butter issues like healthcare, when they try and show Trump up as someone who's just in it for himself. But also, I think for a lot of voters, particularly the people who've seen the onslaught against Trump and the onslaught against Trump voters in recent years, it's going to strike them as very phony. I mean, one person who definitely hasn't accepted the result of the last election was Hillary Clinton. She's still convinced mm. it was the Russians that took it from her. She's never basically conceded defeat on that respect. 
And again, if you think about Russiagate, if you think about the impeachment, all of this, again, shows that the liberal establishment and the Democratic Party also pose a very serious threat to democracy and the democratic principle. So it's going to strike a lot of people as phony. So as you say, you know, Biden seems in some respects a better candidate than Hillary Clinton, which is a strange thing to say, given his mental faculties deteriorating before our very eyes. But nevertheless, I don't think you can count Trump out because if the DNC is anything to go by, they've basically given Trump the terrain that he wants in so many respects, because this is how he managed to squeak over the line last time, despite being a, in so many respects, a terrible candidate. And on the identity issues, what's funny is that Joe Biden tries to do identity politics and fails at it quite badly. You know, it's actually where some of his funniest gaffes have come as a result of him trying to do identity politics. So you think about him saying recently that the Latin community is more diverse, unlike the African-American community. Now, nobody has any idea. We all think the same. <laughs> or, or even he said recently, you know, if you don't know whether to vote for him, you ain't black. <laughs> so he's even when he's trying to do this kind of politics, which I don't think comes very naturally to him, he, he fails at it badly. They should know that it didn't help last time when it was executed professionally by like, you know, well-spun identitarians. Now they have Doddery Joe pushing the same lines. I'm not sure it's it's it could easily fall flat on its face. Ella? I've been told off by... American friends who say it's all very well for you to criticize, but what would you do in our situation? I think we do have to highlight the fact that it, for a kind of someone who isn't completely a kind of paid up establishment member in America, Democrat, and also hates Trump, it's difficult to think of what you are supposed to do. And that I don't think is enough is made of the tragedy of the choice for many American voters, where you're basically stuck with Trump now has proven himself over a number of years to not be a kind of tyrannical monster, but actually just to be sort of like continuously incompetent, uh, not live up to his promises, not kind of do anything to turn America into a kind of catastrophic situation, but also not do very much at all for the kind of rust belters that he promises a completely different way of life. But the Democrats could have such a wealth of examples, especially in relation to the pandemic, to show Trump up and make some kind of principled interventions. But they just time and again fail to do so. So like the issue of healthcare, you couldn't get a stronger issue to focus on at the moment and an issue that Trump is extremely weak on. And yet both Biden and Harris, you know, famously in the debates months ago said, you know, Medicare for all was a sort of impossible pipe dream that was never going to be realised. And now Harris, having criticised Biden on that, has now come into line and say, well, we want to have an approach that's sort of incremental change. And oh, wow, that's really going to set voters on fire for you. You know, in the middle of a pandemic, you can't come up with any kind of revolutionary change for healthcare, despite the fact that it's very obvious that poor people are dying in their thousands across the United States. So it's a history repeating itself. But worse than that, there is no possibility for change because the only sort of rebellious new blood in the Democrats is on the basis of identity politics, as Tom says, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who, again, has nothing really that interesting to say other than mouthing off about institutional racism now and again. So what change does American politics need to see. If you're there and you're a voter, I understand that the choice is very difficult and people are saying, well, you just have to vote for Biden because he's not Trump. But that's not a kind of positive engagement in politics. And it's inevitably, I think it's not going to work. You've been listening to The Spike Podcast. For more Spike content, don't forget to keep visiting us at spiked-online.com where you can also make a donation or treat yourself to something from our shop.